Hi, everybody. On this week's nonpartisan evangelical podcast, I have something very special. I'm Pastor Paul, the TikTok pastor. By the way, glad you found your way to my website. And here's what I got for you. When my novel was first published a little over a year ago or so, before we were in COVID days and human beings could actually gather together in spaces and sit tightly packed together, which we may never totally do again quite the same. We had a a gathering to launch the publishing of my novel in Fresno, California. And it was a time just to express to people why I wrote the novel and what it meant. And that's what this podcast is today, a recording from that gathering uh, over a year ago. So even though the content is over a year old, It's still very new for those of you who may not have read my novel yet called Joseph Comes to Town when the religious right becomes religiously wrong. But even for those who have read to get more insight of what it's all about. So that's our podcast we have today. And I hope you'll join us and listen in to that. Before I get you there, I want to read something else to you. Listen to this. This is a message I received from a young man this week on my TikTok direct messages. It says, Pastor Paul, Just wanted to reach out and tell you that you are a big reason why I haven't abandoned faith entirely. Your messages of love and acceptance are what I've always felt would be the true teachings of a loving God. Thank you for all you do. If you want to know why I do all the TikTok posts I do, why I do this nonpartisan evangelical podcast, you just heard why. A young man saying, I'm not going to abandon my faith because I'm hearing a message that's always been in my heart, but nobody ever put words to. The name of my company uh, under which I do my creative content is called Permission to Speak because I want people to have permission to share something different than what they've always been told by the American Evangelical Church. The message is better. The message of God is better than what is coming out of our churches, particularly those that have been overwhelmed by right-wing political thought. Part of the reason I share that with you is to share the value of what we're doing and sharing here at Permission to Speak through the nonpartisan evangelical, through my TikTok posts, through my Facebook group, through uh, the release of my book, through doing uh, Bible chats live on Saturday and my debrief with my wife on Saturday and our Sunday morning spiritual gatherings. And what enables me to do all of that is the support we get through our nonpartisan evangelical Patreon site. I'd like to invite you to join that site. And it's not like a regular ministry of the past where maybe a a missionary would come and say, give because God will bless you if you give. Now this, you actually get something for it. By becoming a part of our nonpartisan evangelical Patreon community, you get to hear the audiobook version of my book. You get to be a part of our nonpartisan evangelical Facebook group. And that's just the very basic level. And I would hope that you would give just because you think what we're doing is important here. But if you go to higher levels, you can get an autographed copy of my novel. You can get in line to get uh, a chance to win some quarterly swag gifts from the nonpartisan evangelical and Pastor Paul. And you can even 
get a chance to meet with me once a week if you go at the highest level of entry onto the Patreon site. I would like for you to join just so we can continue to have permission to speak and share the message out there that God is not mad at you. Go to pastor-paul.com, click that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner, or go directly to the website, patreon.com slash npepodcast.com. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash NPE Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast.com. I love to see you there and I love all your support. I look forward to it. So now I hope you're looking forward to this podcast, a book group telling why I wrote the book Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Becomes Religiously Wrong. And I hope you enjoy it. Listen in on NPEPodcast.com. <music> For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. What knucklehead, mush for brains, evangelical leaders are trying to, uh, to overthrow Trump. It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself a Christian. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. What a privilege and a pleasure to be the one introducing Paul tonight. In the past, it's usually been the other way around. But I was just reflecting on our journey together, which will mark 25 years on August 12th that we've been married. But we have been on a really incredible journey with many of you in this room. And some I'll probably meet for the first time after we do a little bit of talking. But when I think back on our journey together, like, how did we end up here? How did we end up in Fresno? How did we end up staying here? How do we end up doing the things we're doing now and exploring the things we're exploring now? And it really starts with, I would say, it starts with Paul's pure heart for love and for truth. And he is a person who can carry that in a way that, like, just stuff doesn't stick to. So that led us on a journey of believing that our God is big enough to love a whole city, warts and all, that he's big enough to change an entire city, that it doesn't have to be a thousand years, that he's big enough to, tr to transform and change us in a blink of an eye if he wanted to. And believing that, we're like, hey, so this is a place where we think God that God really cares about and really loves. And so why wouldn't he turn everything upside down and introduce us to who he really is? And so that's how we got on this path. That led to me pursuing elected office, us planting a church, and then um, out of the depths of some really hard and painful things that we've walked through led to him writing this book. So it's been a really beautiful journey, and I'm excited to produce, or not produce. <laughs> Sorry. Whoa. Super, super weird. It's been a week, let me just say. It's been a week. But to present for his first time ever, yeah. Paul Swearingen and Joseph comes to town. Uh, yeah. Thank you. 
You were supposed to say author, Paul Swearingen, because that's now the title. And a friend of mine in Spain bought the book, so I'm now an internationally selling author. I can't put best in front of that yet, but can everybody hear okay? Gosh, it's just amazing that you're here. I thought that would be me, Elaine, and four of our friends maybe that would be here, and particularly on an art hop night. So it means a lot that you guys are here, and hopefully you have one of these, because this gives you all the things you can do to get involved with the community that I'll be telling you about. And then hopefully you've given us your email address uh, on the uh, chart that's coming around. So thank you for doing all of that. And enjoy your tamales, by the way. Aren't they good? Thank you. Thank you, gang. I've never done this before, so I'm just making it up as I go. But I, I thought I would tell you a little bit more about the journey of getting to write, writing the book more than just going in the book itself. And then we can do a Q&A around the book. And so I was just putting together some thoughts about all of it. And I, I sort of have a pat joke that I always tell. A great philosopher named Fresh Prince of Bel-Air once talked about a story all about how my life got twist turned upside down and that happened in my life and in our life as Ashley was alluding to a little bit and so I want to tell you how growing up uh, a conservative evangelical pastor's kid ends up being a guy that writes a book that the subtitle is when the religious right goes religiously wrong and this is a, a little bit about how it went there so I'm going to start you off with a story so imagine being in heaven and hearing a conversation in heaven and so here's God talking to Jesus. And God is like, okay, Jesus, we're going to send you to earth. And you're going to be the perfect representation of me and everything I care about as you go down there. So let's put our, let's put our list of things to talk about together. So in 2,000 years, we'll know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the only two things that I really care about are passing laws to ban abortion and gay marriage. So we know that. Those are the two things that we care about. So Jesus, I'm going to send you to earth now. And I want you to talk about those things never I want you to never mention either of those two things. If you read the Gospels, the four books of the new, that start the New Testament that tell us the story of Jesus, Jesus never mentions those two things. And thinking about that started me on a journey years ago about how did the evangelical church get so focused on something that for whatever reason wasn't a big focus of the guy we're following, or at least it wasn't big enough that four different authors that wrote about him never mentioned it. And so we may think, was there abortion when Jesus was on earth? The Roman Empire had taken over the world at that time and had taken over Israel. And so the law in Rome was if a baby was born and the husband didn't want the baby for any reason, the husband could take the baby, put it on the side of the road, and leave it there. And the baby would then either be taken off by an animal, or would perish from exposure, or could be taken as a, to be raised as a slave in somebody else's house. It was a very common practice in ancient Rome. And so it's quite likely that Jesus was walking around, and you could hear babies crying on the side of the road, yet he never mentioned it. And and, and, and so was there homosexuality in the Roman Empire? It was very common for governors to have young boys that they kept in their homes and as sexual mates. And so these were not uncommon practices in the culture in which Jesus was in. 
yet he never addressed them in all the things he talked about in the four gospels. Now, I'm not making a, a value judgment on anybody's biblical belief. It was just a question of why, when these issues are so important to us as Christians, did Jesus not address them in the gospels? And, and could it be that he had a different vision of, of what pursuing him would look like and what the outcomes of culture would be? Hope you're enjoying this live event we did a little bit over a year ago, pre-COVID, of course, where everybody got together for this discussion about the publishing of my book. And I was telling you at the start of this podcast that you could join our Patreon group and get the audiobook version. Let me give you just a taste of what that sounds like. I don't know what to say, but he holds my lease, the group responded with groans. Why would Beatty want to do this to you? Isaac asked Joseph after the group finally dispersed. Joseph grabbed his jean jacket off a peg on the wall and slipped it on. Because the mindsets in Beckering are strong, people don't like to give up the comfort of the status quo. They particularly don't like to have their deeply held beliefs challenged, even if the status quo is unhealthy and dangerous. Joseph motioned for Isaac to sit down with him at an empty table. It's like the story of the scorpion and the frog. One day a scorpion and a frog stood on the side of a river, both needing to reach the other side. It was the rainy season, and the river was running high and was dangerous. Pretty cool, huh? If you like audiobooks, the only place you can get my novel on audio is through our Patreon community. And we do that because we want to give a special gift to those who help support this ministry. So if you love my TikTok post, if you love the things I do in the Facebook group, if you love our Saturday morning Bible chats or Saturday morning debrief with Paul and Ashley or our Sunday gatherings, then I would love for you to be a part of our Patreon community and help finance what we do. Go to pastor-paul.com. Click on that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner. You can get it there, or you can just go straight to the website, patreon.com slash NPE podcast. That's NPE for nonpartisan evangelical. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NPE podcast. I promise you we're working to make all of this much more streamlined and simple in the near future, but for now, that's how you get there. If nothing else, and you're really confused, go to my website, pastor-paul.com, and send me a message through the events contact page, and I'll guide you through it. Thank you for your heart to help and support this message that God is not mad at the world. What he's mad at is a religious system that is telling them that God is mad at them. Let's tell them different and help support me in doing that and spreading this voice throughout America and the world. Love you guys so much. Now more on why I did it, why I wrote the book, what it's all about, why did Joseph come to town because the religious right has become religiously wrong. More on my book and this live event that happened pre-COVID last year from the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. So I started asking myself a lot of questions uh, on, on this life journey, and I started asking myself this one question as I came into adulthood. I, I grew up in a home where Ronald Reagan and God were neck and neck as the greatest all-time beings in the universe, with, with Reagan pulling slightly ahead, I have to be honest. And 
And, and as I, so that was the backdrop of my life. And so as I begin to ask myself some hard questions about my faith, I, I started thinking, asking the question, is God really a Republican? And is he a conservative? And does he require his people to be Republican conservatives? Now, to many of you who didn't grow up like I did, you may think that's a silly question, but that was what I believed. I thought to be Christian, you were Republican and you were conservative. And so it, it, it was interesting how I started asking these questions. So let me take you back a little bit on my faith journey. As I was coming out of home and going to college, I decided for a whole lot of reasons that I was gonna be an atheist. Uh, you'll be happy to know that. Craig is my agnostic friend that we have many discussions and my friend Mark right here. And so I decided I was gonna be an atheist and, and, and so I pursued that for a little while. I, then I kept asking my, myself questions just, okay, even Darwin said the human eye couldn't have developed in the time that we have on earth. And then I, if the universe is expanding, then, then what's bigger than the universe that it's expanding into? And so there was just as much questions on that side. So I said, well, I might as well just go with the faith that I grew up with. It's a little bit easier for me to deal with. So I decided I would believe in God, but I wasn't going to like it. And we weren't going to be friends. I would just be angry at him from a distance. And, and, and most of that is because what I'd been told in my life is I was going to hell. And so I decided, well, I'm going to hell and I'm going to be in hell for eternity. Then I better sure as heck have a good life while I'm here on earth. And I'm going to live it up. And so I had a little bit of a, a crazy time in my college days, like a lot of us do. But I started to realize that no matter how much fun I tried to stuff into my life, no matter how much alcohol I would drink in a given day, and I could drink a lot of it, no matter how much medicating I did of myself, at the end of the day, I couldn't get away from this gnawing hole in my heart, this hole of these two sweet Sunday school teachers I had in middle school that kept telling me, God is not mad at you, Paul. He actually likes you a lot at a time in my life when I was pretty sure God didn't like me very much because I was a really horrible sinner. And I also, I just had this belief that God was this guy that he liked you if you didn't smoke or chew and you didn't date girls that do. You know, there, there was a, a list. He was this sort of cosmic Santa Claus with a naughty and nice list. And you were either on one or the other at any time. And if you're on that na naughty list, it didn't mean you weren't gonna get presents. It meant you were gonna get left behind and you were gonna get six, six, six nailed onto your head and all this stuff. And, and so it was a really horrible thing. But I started then as I came into adulthood and was working in my career in sports casting, I met Ashley. I started on this faith journey of what if the stuff I've been taught as I was growing up isn't exactly true? And what if as I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading a different story than what I've been told? And probably the most difficult thing for me to reconcile was, why is it that the sinners that I see out there seem to be happier than me? We had this idea of, wow, John Lennon seems really happy, but he's not because he's going to hell. And we're living a really tough life now, but then in eternity, we'll get to say, in your face, John Lennon, you're in hell and we're in heaven. I don't know why my family just had an unnatural hatred of John Lennon. I never could figure out exactly what it was. And then as I started growing up, I'm like, wow, actually the music is pretty good. I, you know, what? But it seemed like there were a lot of sinners that were more at peace with themselves than my people and sinners that seemed to love others more than my people seemed to love others. 
and it made me start asking a lot of questions of, of why and why we would do that. And, and so a lot of these questions started coming up, and, and they're, they're things like the story I told about God and Jesus at the start, and I may have offended some of you with that story. And if you've read my book and you weren't ever just a little bit offended, then I didn't write it the way I meant for myself to write it. I wanted everybody to get just a little bit offended as they read it. And the reason for that is this is what I see in Jesus when he was on earth. He would offend people. And I would always say he would offend their mind to reveal their heart. So he would say things to Jewish people who didn't eat pork because the Bible told them not to eat pork. He would say, to get to heaven, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they would go, what? And he would say, yes, to get to heaven, you have to be a cannibal and eat me. And a whole bunch of people said, okay, I'm out of here. That's it. That's the last thing I'm going to hear from this guy. And they left. And he didn't qualify it with, hey, but I'm really talking about communion. And you're going to do that. And you're going to have it in really nice silver trays someday with grape juice and a cracker. And, and some churches are even going to have gluten-free crackers <laughs> that taste really good to make people happy. And so it's not a bad thing. But no, Jesus didn't qualify it. He said, you're going to have to go through me to get to heaven. And so then he turned to the 12 guys that were with him on his team there. And all of them, I just imagined their eyes were about this big going, what the bleep are you talking about? And I don't think they said bleep. And I think, you know, and then if you read scripture, what the writer says is like, oh, I can't write what they just said. Um, this is a really tough thing you just said, Jesus. Um, and they write it down in scripture that way. And Jesus says, so how about you guys? Are you offended and are you going to leave? And their answer, I think, honestly, was, yes, we're completely offended, but we're going to stick it out and see where you're taking us because something of life is in you that we want to go after and keep going after. And so I think it's important at times to let our life be offended so that our heart can be revealed. Come on in and serve that. Does that make sense? I was on this life journey and I'm considering these questions and I get an investment group together and we buy a couple of radio stations here in Fresno, ESPN 1430. And one of my partners, in fact, both my partners were, were Christian guys. And one of my, my partners was a longtime member of the, the California Democratic Party. He had been elected twice mayor of Oakland, three times state legislator, and just was not Jerry Brown. Okay, not Jerry Brown. <laughs> Although I, I don't know why we wouldn't want it to be. It was a business partner of mine. And me, in my silly part of my life and in this journey, I asked him the question, how can you reconcile being a Democrat and standing for the things that Democrats stand for and be a Christian? Now I look back and think, that was a really dumb question. But at the time, it seemed like a very logical question to me. And this wonderful man looked at me and laughed and I think he understood where I was coming from. And he said, I've read the Bible end to end many times. And he said, I see that it talks a lot more about taking care of the poor than it does about abortion. And I was like, yeah, but yeah, I got no answer to that. And I started thinking about that. And again, I'm back to, so why is it that this is such an important issue to us? And yet... I couldn't deny that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses in the Bible to, that say take care of the poor and the immigrant and the widow. And God's saying my displeasure with you is that you've not cared about the poor. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible that I think is really pertinent right now because I have so many friends that are just so angry about taxes and immigrants. 
And those are two really big issues. And so there's a whole book in the Bible about it called Ruth. How many of you know the story of Ruth in the Bible? So Boaz is a, is a wealthy field owner in the book of Ruth. Ruth is a dirty, filthy immigrant in a, in a place where she shouldn't be living. And Boaz, as a good Jewish citizen, knows that the law says he is not allowed to harvest the outer rim of his fields. You're only allowed to harvest the interior of your fields. And the reason for that was simple. You left the outside of your field unharvested so that the poor and the foreigners who were not allowed to own land could eat. And so they could come and take the produce from the edge of your field. The law also said as, you were, as your harvesters were, were harvesting and gleaning, anything they dropped from their hands, you had to leave on the ground. You weren't allowed to bend over and pick it up. And so everything you would leave behind was there for the poor and the immigrant to pick up. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds to me like God's a little bit pro-tax and a little bit pro-immigrant. I, I don't know. And again, so I'm asking myself, the Bible seems to be telling a different story than some of the things that I understand. But I had a problem in the midst of this trying to work this through. I had what I call my Rush Limbaugh addiction. I was a two to three hour a day conservative talk radio listener. And, and listening to that radio, I call the proctology syndrome. Did you guys read about the proctology syndrome in my book? If you know what a proctologist does, the part of the body the proctologist works on, it's, uh, it's not the most attractive part of the human anatomy. And so if you're a proctologist and you look at the same part of the human anatomy every day, you may come away with the impression of, wow, the human anatomy is really gross and disgusting and doesn't smell good all the time and this ugly stuff comes out of it. Sorry. <laughs> the artist, on the other hand, if you ask them about the human form, they're gonna say what? The human form is amazing and beautiful. And I see this kind of right-wing media thing as a real proctology syndrome. They're always looking for the ugliest thing they can find. And, and I was taking all this stuff in, and it's interesting. I, I, I always wondered how that stuff worked a little bit. And in 2000, I, I came across this study from the University of Nebraska in 2014. They did a study on, is there a psychological, physiological profile of somebody who's conservative versus somebody who's a little more liberal or progressive? And they found that a person that's conservative has a natural bent toward strong reactions to fear and, and, and uh, strong reactions to protect themselves and be worried about aggression against them. And in fact, let's see, it was in the Journal of Behavioral and Brain Sciences, and it said that conservatives are, are, have a, a built-in negative bias. They are physiologically more attuned to negative stimuli. They respond much more rapidly to threatening and averse stimuli. And therefore, things like strong military, tough law enforcement, resistance to immigration, guns, all those things are very naturally fit into where they were. And the scientists went on to say that these were very helpful traits in human beings two and a half million years ago. That they really helped us survive as a species. But they said now it tends to drive us to a little bit of an unhealthy living. Now, if you're here in a liberal and you're like, yeah, get them with that study. I would also say the study showed that liberals are much, tend to be more neurotic than conservatives. So just so you don't all go unscathed. And, 
and some of that be that, that con, you know, conservatives are just so sure of what they know, they're just very pleased in how they live because everything's black and white and you can live that way. But in the midst of all this and my faith journey, I decided I'm going to stop listening to conservative radio for seven days and see what happens in my life. I started feeling like this is making me a little angry and I'm not loving people very well. And so I said, I'm going to stop listening for seven days and see what happens. So I did this seven day fast and I couldn't believe it. The sky of the color changed. The air, even in Fresno, became clear and I could breathe it. Everything changed. My whole outlook of life, and maybe I'm exaggerating it just a little bit, but the impact on my positivity and my hope was amazing. And so I decided I'm never going back to that massive intake of the proctology syndrome. And as I have pastored a church later on in my life, and I sometimes am working with people and I find, wow, you're really angry at people or the government. Or I, I, so I tend to ask, so do you watch a lot of Fox News? And if they say yes, I, I do the same thing. I said, would you do an experiment with me and stop watching it for seven days and see how you feel? And everybody that ever tried that came back and said, I feel better. I feel better. So I think sometimes what we take in starts to come out of our heart. And for me, I was realizing, okay, if I'm on this faith journey with God and I'm starting to look at, all right, I'm supposed to care about some things that I haven't cared about as much, I'm gonna have to stop doing some of this intake. And I started to review that against the story of Jesus in the Bible. And how many of you, who did Jesus say mean things to when he was on earth? Does anybody know? What's that? He flipped the tables, the Pharisees. There was these guys called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I can't find anywhere in the Bible that Jesus sat down with a sinner and said, you are a horrible person that needs to change your life. But to the religious leaders of his day, he said, your dad is the devil. You are a whitewashed tomb, clean on the outside, dead on the inside. You are a dirty cup on the inside, whitewashed on the outside to look at. He said really horribly mean things to the religious people. And, and so I'm like, Jesus, why were you so mean to these guys? They were doing the best they can from what they knew. And I, so I looked at who, who were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and this is a little bit of a broad, I could go deeper into it. But in essence, the religious leaders of that day were so concerned that Rome had taken occupation of their land, their whole belief that God's goal for their season was to overturn the government. And they had been waiting for thousands of years for this guy called the Messiah to show up. And they knew that when the Messiah showed up, he was going to throw Rome out of Jerusalem and Israel was going to be restored to, its, to, it, to being the economic and military power in the world. They, they truly believed that the goal of the Messiah and God in the season was to make Israel great again. Get it? Mega? And so they were wanting this Messiah to come and overturn the government. And so they figured out that the way we're going to get the Messiah to come is if for one second we can get every Jew to not sin, the Messiah will appear. So the only way they knew how to get, the, get people not to sin was to impose massive rules on them. And so they just started making rules upon rules. And so they even had a rule about if an animal died in your house, you couldn't worship for a period of time until you were cleaned up. 
And so they begin to talk about, yeah, but so if your dog dies in your house, then your house is unclean. But what if the dog dies on the stoop of the house? Does that count as unclean then? And so they sit down and they huddle together. What do you think if it dies on the stoop? And so they come back with this ruling. And this is literally a true thing in their culture. If the dog's nose is pointed towards the house, you're unclean. If it's pointed away from the house, you're clean. This is how crazy they were getting with their rules. And they believed if they could legislate enough righteous laws, people would behave and the Messiah would appear. And some got so fervent for it, like the Saul of Tarsus, who we later knew as Paul, he decided anybody that was not willing to follow the rules, we just kill them. Man, women, child, would kill them all because that's how we're going to cleanse the race and get the Messiah to appear. And so as I started looking at this idea of, okay, let's get everybody to behave by biblical rules so that we can have a Messiah come and overturn the government, I said, is that in any way familiar with what's happening in our culture today? People looking for a Messiah to come overturn the government and restore America to its former greatness. Gosh, that sounds a little bit like my people. And I started saying, is that what you want us to be, God? I'm not saying you should vote one way or the other. I would still say I'm conservative and registered Republican. But where is my heart at in all of that? And is that desire to pass laws to make people behave starting to cause me to not be able to have empathy for people that live a life that maybe I think is different than me? God began to work on those things in my heart, and I started saying, okay, I think this has to change in my life. So we come to this place where then I'm going to start planting a church, and my wife's going to run for mayor because we're just wacky, crazy people. But all of this came out of our desire to see Fresno changed forever and be the city that we believed it could be. And as we started running that out and getting involved and doing the things and her running for, for mayor, we started realizing that some of the people that were against the things we thought needed to happen were our own people, our Christian friends, our conservative friends that felt like, no, these other two things that God cares about the most are the things that we have to go after at the expense of everything else. And we were reading the Bible saying, man, the promises of the Bible are that your city is going to prosper and in its prosperity, you will prosper. So why aren't we going after the transformation of our city as much as we're going after imposing biblical laws to force people to behave the way we think they should behave. And that, that, again, is causing us to be in this season of what does this look like? And so what it started then to look to me, what I had thought was fairly benign Christian political beliefs, I was now starting to realize, hey, this is actually hurting people. And not only is it hurting people, it's trapping some inside of it and making them, like me, feel like, I don't feel like I can really care about those people because they're sinners. And I can't really care about those people because it doesn't fit into my partisan ideology. And if God wants me to care about people, then maybe is there something that I've missed in all of this ideology? And I was realizing that this sort of fear-based Christianity was not helping spread the message of the Bible, which I think is an amazing story. So... Fast forward to January 1st, 2017, my wife gives me a copy of Letter from a Birmingham Jail, written by Martin Luther King Jr. 
And as I'm reading this, I come upon this place in the text and it says, Martin Luther King Jr. says, I'm mostly disappointed in the white moderates. I knew the Klan would do what they did. I knew my people would do what they did. But I thought the white moderates would come and stand up for us and speak out and help us. And instead, they're the ones telling us, you should be quiet. You should wait. You shouldn't wreak havoc. And as I was reading that on January 1st, 2017, I started to say, God, if I don't speak out on this, am I complicit in any damage it's doing to people and to the gospel and to the story of the Bible? And it started to really turn inside of me of, Ashley, I've got to do something. So I had this book stirring in me for some time, and I had people telling me, like, God has this for you. You're going to write a book. And I'm like, no, every pastor in America writes a book. Most of them are crappy. We need another Christian book like we need a hole in the head. And so I always said, no, I am not going to write a book. But I had these concepts, and I thought maybe someday, someday when I'm not afraid of people getting mad at me, I'll sit down and write them down in blogs or podcasts or something. And in fact, I, had, I have a whole trove of blogs that I've written that I've never released to the public because I was afraid to and a little bit chicken. And I started saying, am I complicit if I don't do this? So I sat down at this, probably not this iPad, this is the embodiment of the same iPad that I used, replaced three times over, I think. But, and I started pounding away and I wrote, 103,000 words in about six months of the story of Joseph Comes to Town. Then I talked to a a friend of a friend who was in the publishing business, and he said, how many words? I said, oh, 103,000 words. And I was really proud that I had written 103,000 words. And he's like, oh, he said, the average American novel is 60,000 words. People don't read big books in America anymore. He said, War and Peace is 160,000 words. He said, you're at 103, you're going to have to get to at least 72. No, he's going to have to get at least to 80. So you're going to have to go back and kill a whole bunch of people in your story that you love. (laughs) So I started on a path of killing wonderful people in the book. But I loved that editing process because... I discovered Patty in the book. Uh, this is one thing, I, you guys, if, if you read it, Patty is the wife of Saul, the uh, protagonist of the book. And I discovered Patty, and, and Patty was really a lot of me in her, in that she got to be the, the outside voice that's, and say the things that nobody else in the book could say. She just said everything that she thought. And, and so she came alive in this rewrite, and then a whole bunch of other things I put away. And, and particularly if I was reading, I'm like, that seems a little snarky. I'm going to work on that and rework that. And did that. And, and started getting the book to the place where I wanted it to get. Because ultimately what I want the story to be is about the fact that God is not maybe what we think he is or what he's been portrayed by his people. I have this meme I'm going to put out someday that says, Dear world, sorry for my people. Love God. I apologize for mine because we've misrepresented him a little bit. I I, I wanna tell you how I see the story of the Bible from end to end real quick, and then we'll do a little Q&A on the book. And I hope this has been okay. I started to say, has this been okay, but it doesn't matter, because I already did it. (laughs) And it's my event anyway, so there we go. I had a professor in college uh, in a history class, and like I said, I was living a little bit less than Christian life at the time. And so I missed a lot of class because I would really plan to go. And then they had this bar on campus called The Bucket. And then I would have a friend in there and he would say, just stop in and get one beer. And it'd be like, okay. And then four beers later, oh, history class, I forgot. And so 
history was a, a class that I, I actually love history. It's one of my favorites. But I missed this class and I was getting down in the semester and I realized I was going to fail this history class because I had missed so much time in there. So I decided to tell a lie to the professor. I decided to concoct a story and go in and tell the professor that my parents had gotten divorced and had taken me out for the semester and I needed him to have grace on me. And so I prepared this whole story. My parents are still alive and still married today, by the way. But I was going to tell him that my parents were divorced and it had taken me out of history and I needed his grace. And so I sat down with this, this man and I told him my story and he looked at me like, I've heard this story before. And he thought for a few minutes and he was quiet and I'm like, okay, he's not buying it. I am in deep doo-doo. And this professor looks up at me and he says, Mr. Swearingen, do you know what grade you're going to get in this class? And I'm like, I have a pretty good idea. Pretty good idea. And he looks at me and says, you're going to get an A in this class. And I'm like, yes, the story worked. Love it. And he says, I know you love history. From the little interaction that we've had, I know the material here and I know you love it. And I know you can get an A on the material in this class. But he said, I'm banking that if I tell you you're going to get an A, your behavior for the rest of this class is going to change. And I can tell you this, I never missed that class again the rest of that semester. And I did get an A in the class. And the whole of the story of the Bible isn't God saying, I'm ticked off at you, stop acting the way you are. The story of the Bible is God saying, at the end of it all, I'm going to give you an A. I know you haven't acted exactly as I would like for you to act, but your grade at the end of this is going to be an A. And if I tell you that I'm going to give you an A at the end of the class, I believe you're going to want to know me and you're going to want to come and get to know me better and we're going to start to build relationship together and your actions will change in alignment with my heart and our relationship. And to me, that's an amazing story of a creator of the universe, if he exists, Mark, but I believe he does. Mark and I have fun together talking about that. I believe he's a guy that created everything to be really cool. He created penguins to be awesome so that we could go, wow, look at that penguin. That's amazing. Because he thinks we're so cool. And he said, but what's bad is our, our relationship has been interrupted. And so here's what I'm going to do because the level of, of goodness to get to come in heaven and be with me is you have to be perfect and you can never make a mistake ever. How many perfect people do we have in the room today? Yes, Paul, I know you, you are correct. But only one out of all of this. Mother Teresa was not good enough to get to go to heaven. Abraham of the Bible was not good enough to get to go to heaven. So God said, I'm going to take care of it for you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down. I'm going to be one of you. And I'm going to suffer the worst execution ever suffered by any human being in the history of the world. Because I love you so much. And I want to be in relationship with you. And as Christians, we talk about the Bible verse John 3.16 a lot. How many of you John 3.16? I like the next verse, John 3.17. How many of you John 3.17? What's it say? Exactly. It says God did not, yeah, he did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to sozo it is actually the Greek word we use there. And sozo doesn't mean save to get you to heaven. It means 
restoring you wholly as you were meant to be at creation. He sent Jesus to restore relationship between God and man and the picture of David reaching out to him. And that's such a good story. It's such a good marketing angle. Why don't Christians go after that one instead of the two points that Jesus never felt important enough to even mention? And so in that and seeing the pain that it had caused people and the people that I know who used to go to church but don't feel they can anymore because their politics don't line up, I want to say to them, nah, we can think differently together. We can see a Jesus that wasn't bent on government overthrow, but rather was bent on loving people and connecting them to a good father. And so my 103,000 words went down to about 72. And after 12 rounds of editing in April, I finally got a hold of a book in my hand after two and a half years of work. And it's almost, not quite, but almost as cool. My daughter's here, so I'm kidding, but it's almost as good as holding that first baby in your hand. And you're like, oh my gosh. And when people come and tell me they like the book, I'm like, it's, you're telling me that my kids are cute. I love it. It's amazing. And so the story is just of a man who is trapped in a ideological religious system and can't get out. He truly loves people, but he's trapped by his system. And the key moment in the book, if you've read through it for me, the key moment is when Saul and Patty and Elsa are having the encounter at the car and Elsa's apologizing that she hasn't been nicer. And Elsa is the wonderful shepherd of her LGBTQ plus group. And she says to Saul, I'm sorry that I haven't been more kind to you. And Saul has this interaction with her where he says, that's awfully nice of you, but I cannot be in relationship with you because of your lifestyle. And Elsa turns to him finally and says, you know what? You pity me because of my lifestyle. I pity you because yours. You are trapped in a lifestyle. And as they drive home in silence, Patty, my favorite character of all, finally turns to Saul and says, she is better than us. And to me, that's been my journey to say, wow, these people who I thought didn't understand the Bible and were off course have had a better heart for people than me. And God turned that around for me. And so that's the story I wrote. I like it a lot. I like the characters a lot, except for Hal and Matthew, <laughs> who I intentionally made really nasty, unloving, no backstory characters. And that's how Joseph Comes to Town came to be. And so now if you have that, that flyer, we're going to start a podcast to support that called The Nonpartisan Evangelical. Because I still claim to be an evangelical, even though I'm hanging on by the skin of my fingernails sometimes. But I want to start to say, hey, there's another way to tell the story of the Bible. So we'll talk more about that. But right now, does anybody have questions or thoughts or anything you want to ask about what I shared or about the book? In fact, we have a microphone because I'm recording this. So who wants to ask something? Paul, let me see if I can get it over there. Hang on a second. Do you consider yourself a prodigal son? Do I consider myself what? A prodigal son. Do I consider myself a prodigal son? Yeah, I would. Oops, sorry about that. I, yeah, I guess so. I, I think that the story of the prodigal son, again, is it ought to be called the story of the good father because it's a story of a son who made a plan to come back and tell a story like my story of my parents' divorce and try to get back in his dad's good graces. And instead of having to tell that story, his dad sprints to him, grabs him, hugs him, won't even hear the story, and says, 
let's restore my son to complete, you know, in fact, in the story, it says, let's put a ring on his finger. And what actually is being said there when it says, put the ring on his finger, the signet ring is what gave you the right to use the family checkbook. So not only, he, he didn't say, come back, but we're going to be really wary of you for a while. And you're going to have to earn your way back in. He's no, you are fully a son of this house and you have all the rights of the house. And yeah, that's, that's the God I know that he, after all the time of me saying, all right, I'll believe in you, God, but I'm not going to like you. He says, man, the second you're ready to turn back to me, I'm there. And not only am I there, I'm sprinting down the road after you. So yeah, I guess so. Good question. Let's see if this can reach. How much? Do... Okay. They were all made up by me. Do you want one? I've been think- I-, I want to start making some of the shirts. Which, did you have one that you liked? In, or, the question was, did I make up Joseph's t-shirts or had I seen those somewhere else? And the truth is I made them all up, yeah. So which one, did, do you remember one that you liked? They were all great. I just, there were so many. He had one every time. His first one was, God is not mad at you. And that's my basic mantra. So I'm definitely going to come out with a God is not mad at you t-shirt. I have a God is not mad at you wristband on right now. So I really like that one. But I, I don't remember all exactly how they went. But I love the ones that are God loves... God loves uh, immigrants, this person, and he also loves Christians, or he also loves you, and, or, or God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. I, I don't know. I, there's something about those I find really funny. And, uh, but each of them was making a statement in it. So, yeah, it's going to be our goal to start. In fact, I talked to the guys at Root about it the other day. We'll get some of the T-shirts out. What else? Tell me what you liked about it or what spoke to you in the book. Craig. I think I asked you this once before. Yeah. Yeah. But you have a lot of life ahead. So, seeing that you have changed your views this far, what could you see in the future might also <laughs> If you had asked 25-year-old Paul if I would be doing this and giving this talk today, I would have said, no bleeping way. So I'm not sure how I can guess what the next amount of years hold. I know what the near term is, and the near term is a lot of those blogs that I've written over the last 10 years that I was afraid of anybody knowing I thought that. I'm going to start letting people know I think that. Some of this is embarrassing for me, so I'm trying to think of how I say this. Ashley and I went to Beth and Lori's house for breakfast the other day. Sorry, this makes me a little bit emotional even. And as a gay family, we had such a wonderful time with them. And there are still people around us that would find it difficult that we would have that interaction. Maybe not the interaction in and of itself, because, yeah, we can love gay people, but I think. And so at the end of that breakfast together, we actually said, hey, let's pray together. And, and so we prayed And then I just felt like, I'm like, hey, you guys pray for us. And they prayed for us. And for much of my life, I've won. I thought, can, so this is the embarrassing part of this, you know, can gay people, I wondered if Democrats could be Christian. So certainly it's okay for me to think, can gay people be Christian? And there's still a a part of me that has this theology Bible thing that I'm like, but I know what scripture says. But I know the people that I sat with at that table. I know their heart for Jesus is as strong as mine is. And so Lori posted something about that. And still, 
there's a moment of what's going to happen when my friends see that we prayed with gay people. And I'm so sorry to say that. I hope that's not offensive at all. And then I'm like, I don't care. We're popping that on my timeline and this is who we are and this is where we're going. And so some of it may be that we have some friends that may not be totally completely comfortable with where we're going and then we're exploring what that looks like theologically. Um, I am in relationship with a ton of pastors all over the world. And so I'm getting to have all these conversations like, so how do you read this? And what is, you know, do you understand this verse? And, and, and I keep asking these questions. If we can't make peace with this, then how have we made peace with divorce? Because Jesus didn't mention these two. He mentioned divorce straight out of his mouth. It's in red letters in the Bible. And we're like, okay with that now. We've made a peace with that in the church. And gluttony and other things. So I'm just asking these questions of like, how do we work this through in concert with God and have a heart for people? And if my theology crashes into my need to love people, am I willing to let theology win or love win? So anyway, that's, so that's the journey we're on here, Craig. Thanks for asking and letting me say in a really embarrassing qu- answer. One more thing to say. Yeah. And her partner was a devout Catholic. You know, it's, I don't know how you justify all of that stuff or wrap it around or make it real, but my life is mostly sounds to a lesbian woman's life. To, to get and that was a positive thing in your life? Oh, yeah. 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 Did you guys hear what he said? So that's the question I kept asking. How can these sinners, and again, I'm sorry if I offend anybody. I'm just talking from a mindset that I came out of. How could these sinners have a better heart for people than me? If I'm, from, if I'm in concert with the God of love that came and died on the cross for us, why are my rules harsher than the rules people have for each other? That's, what I, that's a, a tough question that I keep asking. Yeah, Deb. When I was being what? So she was asking if, uh, when I was talking about the prodigal son, she was wondering if that was when I was living rigidly in the rules. Probably in the prodigal son, the religious right-wing character in that story is the brother, the big brother that then gets ticked off that his other brother, the bad one, is reinstated to the family. And he's like, hey, you never had a party for me. And the funny thing about the Bible is it wasn't written by Americans for Americans. I know that's a shocker for people. It's a, it's a, yeah, there you go. And so if we read it, if we read the Bible with an American understanding of righteousness and justice, we can miss it. And so for us, that is so unfair. There's this one parable in the Bible where the worker has all these workers come and some work all day, some work a few hours, and then there's these others that come at the very end and they hardly do any work at all. So we're Americans, we're like, this guy gets paid, this guy gets paid this, and this guy gets paid jack squat. And the parable that Jesus is telling is they all get paid the same. And as Americans, we're like, man, God is unfair. That is ridiculous. That guy that worked the whole day is just getting ripped off here. And God is, yeah, that's the whole story, is whether you think you're this really good or barely coming in at the last minute, all of you deserve the same reward in it all because none of you deserve the reward I gave you anyway. And so the boss can pay out of the goodness of his heart whatever he wants to pay. 
And so that rigidness to say, ultimately what we're trying to do in that sometime is here's the bar that I can get over. And so then I'll make that bar behind me that everybody else has to cross. The divorce thing, I haven't quite beaten that yet. So we'll start to make that one a little bit easier to, to get over. But the ones that I've surpassed, I'll start putting those rules harshly on other people. And so the prodigal son part of me was the, really the college so, sojourner out there that then came back to God. And then, yeah, then the staunch uh, sort of angry guy was, would be the big brother of the lust. <laughs> was also me. I was also, <laughs> I was all of the above at the same time. It was interesting, Craig asked me the other day which character I was in the book. And I think in the end, I, as I started thinking about that brilliant question, I'm like, yeah, I think at different times I've been everybody in the story. They're all me to some extent. But, uh, and certainly Isaac and being on a quest was a big part of my life. But, but ultimately, I think I'm Patty because I'm the one that just can never shut my mouth. And, <laughs> and I'm always sick of these Christian people sometimes. And then Craig was nice enough to say I was Joseph, but I'm not quite ready to call myself Jesus just yet. Yeah, Nancy. Yeah, it'll reach you. There you go. It seems like some of that rigid, rigidity that you're talking about breaks down when you get close. So it's proximity, right? Close you, to people? Yeah, yeah. When you start getting close to people who are different, then it's really hard to keep those super rigid ideas about yeah. them because you get to know them and they're different. And in the book, you talk, you said in Maya story where... You know, I forget what exactly the story, but was it 50 people, whatever, from one side of the town moved to the other and then 50 people from the other. What do you see that for our city? Like, how do we get close? How do we change the narrative of different places and help people to get close so some of that rigidity breaks down? Yeah, great question. I don't know if you want to jump in on that one at all. Or Phil. So this is Phil Skye. And Phil is works for the city and also is a co-pastor with his wife of on ramps covenant church and phil does all kinds of cool stuff in this but phil actually i'll give you this mic but phil has a bunch of churches and church leaders gathering together in a group called vision 22 and that number 22 equates to the 22 poorest neighborhoods of fresno and trying to connect churches from other parts of the city with those 22 poor neighborhoods so that we can do exactly that get out of our get out of our bubble and start to interact with people that are out of our comfort zone. And we've even put a little curriculum together for people to learn. But Phil, I don't know if you want to answer any of that since this is your wheelhouse, man. Thank you, Paul. I struggle with the question myself. I really do. Because you're asking, Nancy, to me, when I hear you ask that question, you're asking what would compel a person's will to move beyond really our social barriers. And I've thought about that a lot. Obviously, You've done that. So for those of you that don't know Nancy's story, Nancy has chosen 20 years ago, 19 years ago, to move into what historically was a very poor and high crime neighborhood and has been there for 19 years. And is, you mentioned Mother Teresa earlier, Paul, and we often in the neighborhood refer to Nancy as the Mother Teresa of Lowell. <laughs> and, but she's the last person to say that about herself. And uh, so what compels someone's will to become engaged. And I think so much of our conversation as a city is us looking at our city and saying, listen, concentrated poverty is plaguing our city. We acknowledge that pretty readily. 
but our solutions really are solutions from the outside. And so we look at our, con our high concentrated poverty neighborhoods and we say, let us enact a force that's gonna cause that to change, which is gonna mean that, that the poorest members of our city are going to have access to the middle class. But the moment that happens, people are going to move and they're gonna move from a poor neighborhood and they're gonna move to a middle class neighborhood. And I would submit to this room that the moment that that happens, those that live in that middle class neighborhood, the moment that someone who once was poor moves into that neighborhood, because of our own prejudice, because of our own racism, we're going to then move out of this neighborhood and we're gonna find someplace else to go. It's gonna be further east or it's gonna be further north, or it's gonna be further west and we just repeat the cycle. So you're asking such a difficult question, you're asking a human question, like how does, what compels the will of an individual to live in proximity to diversity and understand that diversity uh, is what makes us healthy? Uh, I don't know the answer to the question, but what I appreciate about this book, Paul, and what I appreciate about you is as I read it, I, I think that most of us don't read the Bible most of us have interpreted the Bible through other people. And what I so appreciate about this book is that I feel like you are in many ways, you're cutting right through all of scripture and you're just communicating God's heart. And that to me, and if you can understand God's heart, then you can go back to Genesis and you can read it through again and you'll walk away with an entirely different understanding of who God is and what his mission is on this earth. So I just appreciate you so much. Oh, thanks, Phil. And I think, and part of that story, Nancy, is that the problems got to be bad enough that the people had to deal with them. And so part of the story of that is like, what I want to tell people here is, is we're supposed to care about this stuff. I, I think, again, I, I go back to the big two issues, and if, as a Christian, I think those are the only two things God wants me to battle for, then I'll throw a whole bunch of other stuff out the door to go after a law to stop abortion. I, a Supreme Court justice to, to overturn that law becomes everything to me, and I lose out on, but yeah, but he also cares about the poor. He also, and, and, and when we're looking at changing systemic poverty in Fresno, it's going to take everybody, including the, the Christian community and the development community and all of us saying, the only way this stops in Fresno is we have the, the, the community will to stop it because we don't have a natural boundary to stop it. We can just keep hopping different ways. And so it's going to take for people like those in this room who have connections into the Christian community saying, hey, I think God really wants us to care about this. And yeah, for people like Nancy and Phil who have moved into the poorer neighborhoods to try to be a part of that change and be a part of that exchange of life. You guys are amazing. You're my heroes. And you sent your son to Edison. So the rest of us have to have a collective will to say, no, we will not allow sprawl to continue to happen. We have to stand against it. And if there's just this idea, because I'm conservative, I can't stand against progress then we just keep doing what we've done for the last 50 years and wonder why our city stays the same. So that's what it's going to take is people like you and us saying, hey, we have to care about this. And it may take a generation change for us to ever really get there. You know, I, I laugh. And these are all issues that, that we always can get through. And I always make my wife cringe when I have these discussions. But we had people leave our church 
because my wife supported high-speed rail. Now, that's how crazy we get sometimes, that, that they were opposed to this idea, and, and my wife was saying, hey, if this thing works, this is going to impact our economy in a way nothing else has ever had the opportunity to do. Why wouldn't we explore that as far as we can go? And these people leave our church because they think it's a sin to be in favor of this because we don't understand that God cares about more than just conservative, ideological, partisan issues, that he actually cares about all of our city growing. And I I told the story in there of you live in a small city. If you're in a life bubble and you only watch certain cable news networks and you never get news that tells you anything other than you already know, and you only hang out with people who agree with everything you already know, how do you ever get a new vision of anything other than what you already know? And there's this great verse in the Bible, Romans 12, 2, that says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can know the will of God. And what that verse, that word world is really a word, word aeon. It's don't be conformed to everything that you hear around you. Allow yourself to break out of your bubble and learn something new so that you can know where God's heart is in a season. And when we get stuck in that bubble and we're always believing the same thing, and it's where I think a lot of people are and the people I'm speaking to in the book, I want to say, get out of that bubble. There's a whole other world that's out there and it's pretty cool and amazing and sometimes scary, but let's go for it and see what happens. Sorry, I'm doing a lot of preaching here. Sorry about that. Go ahead, Elaine. Yeah, I'm a preacher. You give a preacher a microphone and that's what happens. So I just have to share that one of my favorite parts of this is uh, in chapter 7 when we're talking about Isaac. And so he and Tank are in the car and Isaac is just not sure about everything he's learned from his dad. So he says, I know God has to be different than the one we've heard about all our lives. There's got to be more to believing in God than praying for Republicans to be elected and the right Supreme Court justice to be picked. There's got to be. And I just found that super timely and it just really hit home to me. So, Thank you. Who else has a question? Anyone? I've answered everything. Lori's here, yeah. What's that, Paul? Oh, thank you. Thank you. So who was your favorite character in the book? Yeah, Julie. You loved Elsa? Loved how Elsa loved people. The Probably a big part of what inspired me to write the book was, what year was the rally at the city hall? 2008, before my wife was mayor. That was before you were mayor, right? Yeah, you were, in the, you were running at that time. There was a defensive marriage rally on the steps of, of Fresno City Hall. Our mayor at the time was there, and one of our big church pastors, who happens to be a good friend of mine, was there. And, and I... I I was watching the news coverage of it on TV later that day and I I saw the rally going on the steps and then in the news they'll do what we call the cutaway in the news business you you cut away to another shot of something else that was happening at the time and so they cut away to the shot of this police tape that was stretched between two trees 
and it said the do not cross tape. And we call it the thou shalt not cross tape in the book. And, and the announcer on the TV station said there were protesters at the event as well. And they cut away to the shot of these people behind this do not cross tape. And I just have a sense sometimes that God is jabbing me to see where offending my mind to, to go after my heart. And I just had a sense of God asking me, if I were there at that event, where would I be? Would I be on the steps of the city hall or would I be behind that tape? And as I was pondering that, I just had a sense that he was like, I would so be behind that tape. I would be with those people. And again, that was at a, a, a part of my journey. And so that picture has always stuck with me. And, that, and so that, I always knew that was going to be the kickoff of the book was this idea of political power in the religious realm being displayed on the stage while here's the other group far away being withheld by the police tape. And just seeing that dichotomy and then this Jesus-type character coming in the middle and Saul being like, hey, here he comes, he wants to meet me. And then it's, oh wait, he doesn't want to meet me, he's going over there. <laughs> and how that starts the process of changing him. So I love that. I also love um, the pickup truck with the bumper stickers. I actually have seen that pickup and it was at my church. And I, I remember driving in one day to the parking lot and seeing a pickup of one of my parishioners and it had a bumper sticker that said Huck Fillery 2016 on it. And I'm like, yay, Christians with their bumper stickers. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. This is a proud moment for me as a pastor, got to tell you. And, and again, all of these things leading to this place of these are good people. I know the guy driving that truck is a good person that, that wants to do the best for his family, but he's come to this belief that this is who he has to be to put a Huck Fillery bumper sticker on the back of his truck. And what that does to his ability to have relationship with anybody that isn't in his same thought bubble, why would we want to do that? So anyway, there it is. Joseph comes to town. Anything else? Yeah. Can we reach you? What's your name? Jessica. Is it on? There you go. All right. So I was really, I think Phil pointed this too, I was really impressed by your ability just to cut through straight to examining the character of God. And for me in my own faith story, that's been just this huge gift and kind of like coming back and encountering God for a second time with a fresh character and like an accurate character of who God is. So I'm curious if you'd be willing to share with us like in your own story of just your transformation and your the story of getting like untrapped and you're kind of re-encountering this character of God. What has that done for you in your personal relationship with God? What has that done for you in your personal spirituality? Because I know for me, my excitement is always what's happening externally and how I engage the world around me. But I'm curious, like, how does that help you engage yourself and God personally? Wow. Good question. It helps. <laughs> it, what's my best way to answer that? Again, I go back to the, I, at a time when... What I was hearing from the church was, you're bad, you're bad, you should be better. And I, in high school, I was never the huge party guy, but a little bit of a party guy. And, and doing things that I knew made God angry at me. 
And I knew if my parents ever found out, it would be catastrophic to the world because my dad was a pastor and we had to be pastor's kids and be good and all these things. And in the middle of it, I had these two women that just kept telling me, we just think God loves you so much and he thinks you're so good. And, and you have such a great destiny. And they would just, every Sunday, I would come in thinking, oh, today's the day they're going to out me as this horrible sinner. And, and they would be there again going, wow, God has great plans for you. And there's a verse in Jeremiah 29, 11 in the Bible that says, God, it's God talking to us. And he says, I know the plans I have for you, and they're not to harm you. They're, they're good plans for you, and they're to give you hope and a future. And, and when I was at probably the most hopeless time in my life, I just grabbed onto that verse and I would just say it all the time. And I'd be like, life really sucks today, but I have a hope and a future. And, and really probably carried me through some times when I never considered suicide in my life, but I probably was depressed enough that if I had the guts to do it, maybe I would have, I don't know. And that's, I know that's a, a poor way to look at suicide. But that story of those women telling me I was good, carried me through some of the darkest times in my life. My grandmother used to tell me good things about me. And so then my view of God, though, was like he was this really angry, mean guy. And thank God we had Jesus because Jesus was here going, okay, wait, Dad. Yeah, yeah, Paul deserves to die today, but don't look. Don't see what he's doing. And, and Jesus was protecting me from God. And thank God for that. And when... Those came together and I started saying, no, Jesus was the representation of the character of God. He came to say, you have completely misjudged who he is. And because of that, you act this way. And so Saul's transformation in the story is ultimately realizing because of what happened with his father, he was mad at God and he thought God was a mean guy. And so he was not only at enmity with God, but he was trying to protect people from God because he thought God was that guy. And so when I learned, no, actually the creator of the universe likes me and finds me okay and worthwhile of his time, it changed everything in our relationship. <laughs> it's, you're gonna have a relationship with somebody that says, not only am I so pleased with you, but every mistake you ever made, I took care of that for you. Everything you've ever done wrong, I'm giving you an A at the end of all of that. So it made me able to have a relationship with a creator that I could never have before. And so that's the message I want to tell everybody is God is not mad at you. Could he be because he already paid the price for everything you've ever done wrong? So does that answer your question? Yeah, it makes it more full. There's a great thing at the end of the story of Jesus on the cross. The last thing he says is this word tetelestai. And it's the last thing he says before he dies. And to, to telestai was an accounting term in their culture. When they were loading up a ship to go overseas or they were doing a transaction and they were selling this many loaves of barley for whatever they were getting in return, once they had checked the manifest and tested, checked everything off that everything had been paid that was going to be paid, they would declare to each other to telestai. It's finished. Everything that can be paid in this transaction is paid and there's nothing else we have to do to satisfy the contract. And so I think it was very intentional of Jesus at the end of it all. He yelled to Telestai, it is finished. Everything that contractually is owed in this agreement has been paid and nothing more can ever be charged or owed. And I don't know, I think that's a really fascinating part of the story of, of the crucifixion. Yeah. Well, uh, so did you like it? 
You wouldn't tell me if you didn't. But if you tell me you do, it's like telling me my children are good, are good people. So, yeah, thank you. So do me a favor. Ashley and I have a Patreon site. We just cut a video together for it the other day where we look really good. And Ashley and I on our Patreon site are going to tell some of the story of our life. And that's a place where you can help financially support us as well in, in uh, building this community. And so there are some other things on there. Go to Amazon and give me a review for the book. Those things mean a lot to Amazon and impact how they, they promote your book and things. And just support us in building this community. Is there anything else I need to share? And thank you for listening to my story. And if, if I sign your book, the value of it actually goes down. But someday when I'm dead, it's going to be worth a whole lot of money. So if you want me to autograph the book, I would be glad to do that as well. And I would love to say hi to everybody. So thank you guys for being here. It means the world to us that you came out on a Thursday night. So bless you guys. We'll see you.